In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. You can believe how beautiful you're looking, Shaq. Isn't it great that you can shake again? Remember when you couldn't even shake? Look at that. The stitches are looking beautiful, Mr. Shaq. They're looking beautiful, aren't they? Let's show everybody your healing. Look. Oh, mister. It's really just beautiful. It's hard to believe the beauty you have, mister. What an unbelievable dog you are. That is Niall Harbison and a tough and lucky street dog named Shaq. For his hundreds of thousands of followers on social media, Niall is the loving, quirky savior of street dogs on the small island of Koh Samui in Thailand. Rodney, Mr. Fox, McMuffin, and Tina are a few of the many dogs that now have international fans. He has written, Niall has, about his journey from nearly dying of alcoholism to becoming a dog rescuer. Niall Harbison's new book is Hope. How Street Dogs Taught Me the Meaning of Life. He joins us now from Thailand. Niall, hello. Hi, it's funny hearing my own voice uh, played back. (laughs) (laughs) You talking to a dog, which sounds familiar, I think, for any of us who who have dogs around the house. Tell us about Shaq. You you should probably have a look at him online if you you get the chance. He had this huge tumor um, on his neck, which was the, the reason I called him Shaq was after the basketball player, because it was literally the size of a basketball. And I got sent this photo of him and he, he was a street dog. I look after street dogs and he, um, oh, the photo was just told a thousand words. He, you know, given up on life. He was being weighed down by this massive two pound uh, weight around his neck and just had to get him fixed somehow. Um, and it was a big daunting task to take on. The fact that you do this work, the fact that you take on that task is something that that runs through this book. You say that most people think that you save dogs, but in fact that they saved you. What do you mean by that? I had a fairly, you know, normal career chef. And then I worked in media, actually, and for 10 years and was an entrepreneur and kind of in the rat race, for want of a better word, you know, just city life and trying to buy nice iPhones and shoes and, you know, the usual stuff that we we chase. And then... Um, I was an alcoholic and suffered from depression and I pretty much nearly drank myself to death. Um, Well, I I did nearly drink myself to death. I ended up in ICU hospital in Thailand and I just said, God, there has to be something more to life than, than what I lived. You know, there has to be something that has some meaning. I was like, I'm going to die here. And like, what have I done? I've done a few spreadsheets of, you know, stayed late in the office. I've sent urgent emails. Like, I mean, who's going to remember that? So I said, I'm going to change it all if I do survive. And dogs has always been my passion. So I jumped into that and best decision ever. Tell me about your life before you got to Thailand. One of the things was as as a chef for for people like Paul Allen, right? The the co-founder of Microsoft. Yeah, I used to be a private chef because I, I quickly figured out being a chef in a normal restaurant is just too hard work and too badly paid. So I figured out uh, that I could go and work on yachts and um, 
sort of in ski seasons and play, like exotic places. And so, yeah, I became a chef to a private chef to billionaires. Cook breakfast for people like Bono. Yeah, I, I cooked. I always remember his. It was in Cannes, actually, the Cannes Film Festival, uh, where they all kind of mingle. And he came back with maybe a few few Guinness on board, let's say, at about five o'clock in the morning. Him and his friends were there and he ordered, he found out that I was Irish, the chef, and he ordered 32 Irish breakfasts for all. So I kind of cursed him a bit that morning when that order came through, but uh, we got it, we got it cooked. It sounds like a charmed life. When did things start to go sideways for you? Oh, I've always had issues. From my childhood, I sort of had some issues growing up with um, my mom got abused and a few things like that that I never really dealt with. And I think you can, it may be in your 20s and 30s when you can drink and everybody else is, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But I, I mean, I was a functioning alcoholic and then I suffered from depression and um, always kind of binge drinking and, and worked my way through it. But then it just got worse and worse and um, ended up uh, yeah in hospital at the very end. It, it got so bad. How did you end up in Thailand? Why, having done all this stuff, why did you decide that that was the place for you to go? Well, I was trying to, I was always trying to get healthy. Before I ended up in hospital, I was just like, maybe if I can go somewhere a bit warmer, Ireland is pretty cold and, uh, you know, the winters are long. I was like, there's a lot of alcohol. I was like, maybe Thailand, it's, you know, there's a nice healthy scene here. There's good weather, but it doesn't really matter where you are. If you're an alcoholic, you'll still find, find, uh, alcohol um but it was it, it i now live a fantastic lifestyle here but it, it it didn't matter at that stage where i was and you had a little bit of money from work so that you could afford to to kind of move there yeah i had like not a huge amount but just enough to get me started like i was um i didn't have to work for a couple of years so that's when i just started feeding the dogs you know it wasn't expensive at the start i was just buying a little bag of food every day which was about, you know, four kilos, eight pounds. And I just started feeding them and it started really, really small like that. And then before I knew it, I was feeding a hundred every day and we're now up to 800 every day. So um, yeah, it's it's been a been quite a journey. How does that be really, that part of your story begin? As you mentioned, you'd kind of hit rock bottom. You're in the hospital. You're not sure whether you're going to make it. And then, as you said, you start to think about dogs. I think a lot of people would think about any number of things. Why dogs? Well, I think it was just the the thing that really I was always passionate about. I mean, Snoop was my dog who I brought from Ireland with me. And really, when I was lying there dying, he was the thing that got me through. I was like, I, I wouldn't mind if I died now. It would be easier. I'd just, you know, fade away. But I can't leave him. Uh, he's He's been there for me through the whole time. Like, he just would wonder where I was. So I got back out. And then I always loved dogs. I mean... I just, in that hospital bed, I was thinking, I like, you know, football when I was a kid and I like dogs. And I was like, what are the things that I just, you lose some of those passions, I think, as you, the life grinds you down, you know, when you're in your job and your mortgage and whatever it is. Um, so I was just like, I love dogs and I'm going to just pursue this and see where it takes me. I had no idea it would be writing a book or social media followers or I no idea but it just sort of snowballed out of nowhere people sort of resonated with it on the streets of Thailand on the island that you're in how many street dogs are there roaming around on the island I'm on there are about five or six thousand um we've sterilized now 
2,000 of them, which means neutering and spaying them. Uh, so we're starting to get on top of the problem. But in Thailand alone, there's 8 million street dogs. 8 million? Yeah. Like if I, if I leave my house and go down to the local shop, there'll be, you know, four or five dogs that are street dogs just outside the 7-Eleven. So it's a very different world to understand. How is it possible that so many dogs end up on the street? I think it's a mixture of ambivalence. People are just not that bothered about them. There's no government controls to talk about at all. Um, And then I think the culture as well is one of um, Buddhism is, is big here. So they kind of it sort of let the problem just sort itself out, which of course it doesn't. The dogs reproduce, etc. But I, I'm a big believer in that. Like you know, we've bred dogs to be our companions as humans, and it's kind of our responsibility, you know, to to look after them because they're pretty bad at looking after themselves. To be honest, on the street, they have like horrendous suffering just because. They're not very good at, you know, they pick up diseases, they struggle to find food, they get attacked by humans. So, yeah, this, it's it's a big problem. And so you started in with this, as you said, with one bag of food. And then what happened? Then it got bigger and uh, I got up to about 100 and I was spending, I think it was about 50 bucks a day or 70 bucks a day. But then I was like, okay, well, there's a few people doing this, like a couple of older ladies were doing it. So it was about, you know, three or 400 dogs. And I was like, why don't I just hire a Thai lady to cook the food? Because the wages are quite cheap and the ingredients are cheap. So I started cooking it all. So it was way cheaper. And I was able to give the food to the other ladies who were volunteering as well. So very quickly, that was how I sort of jumped up to 400 dogs. And now it's 800. So there's a little kitchen. They cook all the food there every day. So it's uh, it's like a little little factory making the food for the dogs. And you're now, I mean, the mission is to try to save 10,000 dogs a month? Yeah, I, I mean, that was how I initially started. It's actually got bigger now. It's, it's um, I think we're already there, to be honest, because mm. I sterilized um, 2,000 already. And sterilizing might not, it's not that sexy for want of a better word or that exciting but it stops so many dogs coming into the world so for every dog you sterilize you're probably stopping 10 or 20 puppies coming in the future so that's massively important and then feeding 800 every day and then obviously i rehome quite a lot of dogs to america europe and then there's also the feeding as well so yeah it's it's multifaceted but it's uh it's a it's a very tough problem to kind of crack but I'm, I'm i'm very determined to get it done I mean, you could do the feeding who's doing the sterilizing of the dogs that sounds like a whole other operation yeah there's vets who, who do that um local vets and but even i mean 2000 sounds great but i need to ramp that up to you know tens of thousands to really get on top of the problem it costs about between about 30 and 50 dollars per dog to sterilize it so it's it's not a very glamorous thing to be doing but it's it really, really works. And it's the only way to ease the suffering. So my main focus is just kind of raising awareness. And that's why I wrote the book to kind of fundraise to help sterilize more dogs. So it's, um, we're making good progress. It's 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 uh, exciting, but a big problem. How do these dogs respond, the street dogs, when you roll down the road with a, you know, a moped full of food um, ready for them? Oh, it's amazing. They They get to know, it's like, I have, I still feed them myself every day, the 80 of my own ones, and then the volunteers do the other ones, but they recognize the pitch of the engine. You know, like if anybody has a dog at home, they'll 
probably their dog recognizes their, you know, their footsteps or the car or whatever it is. The dogs are the same. They know my moped is the food guy coming. They're like, oh, there's the there's the little Irishman coming on his moped uh, down the road. And they all come running out wagon tails and uh, they're they're delighted, which fills my, f- like, it's, it's very sort of self-rewarding as well mm. in terms of, and and then it makes like like I said, I was an alcoholic before uh, and struggled with depression. So like it's just being able to turn up for those dogs every day is a, is a really nice feeling for me, um, and you know keeps me on the straight and narrow. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced the Vinyl Cafe with the late great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than two million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart. And for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Just describe the condition that some of these dogs would be in. Again, living on the street um, is, is really tough for them. Yeah, I sometimes think it's like triage. Like I'm kind of used to it now, but like I walk out there, I don't know what you're going to, like a a dog hit by a car. I've had dogs shot with a nail gun, slashed with machetes. Um, I'm just trying to think of all the injuries. Like, I mean, you you could be walking into anything. They, They also fight with each other over territory. You know, humans are very unkind to them. The biggest danger, I would say, is cars. There's just so many dogs and so many cars that, and people just, it's not the same. They don't really, they don't really care. Have you been bit trying to rescue a dog or trying to help one of those dogs that would be very suspicious of, I mean, yeah. you, yes, you have food, but they're very suspicious of people because of what they've gone through. Yeah, the worst one was I was, I was trying to sterilize a dog and um, it was a big, big guy and he wouldn't they don't come easily sometimes so we sedated him um and uh in his food and obviously didn't put enough in because he was a big guy and i was just reaching over to pick him up without really looking and he got a big chunk out of my arm (laughs) he definitely wasn't asleep so i uh i screamed like a baby uh and it was very painful i ended up in hospital but nothing nothing just a little scar to show for it and something like that wouldn't turn you off from doing this work no, I mean, like I said, I wasn't especially materialistic or anything before, but just like anybody else. But um, the feeling that you get when you when you save a dog's life or you, you know, literally you do save a dog's life someday and then you go home like I'll go to bed now and I'll, I'll think about that and I'll be like, God, I've done something that's actually made the world a better place. I know that sounds cheesy or whatever, but that's that's how I feel. Not everybody in, in the town that you're in is a huge fan of what you're doing, right? No, um, I've had like rocks thrown at me and machetes waved at me and stuff. And I don't want to say that's good, but I do understand sometimes, like sometimes there's 10, 15 dogs. And if they, if you had 10 or 15 dogs outside your house, you know, living like you wouldn't really love that yourself. I mean, it's not a great setup. And then if I come along a foreigner and I'm feeding the dogs, it might get lost in translation that I'm doing all the vaccines and the sterilizing and there's a bigger picture. They just see, you know, a foreigner coming along, feeding the dogs outside their house and they can get angry. So, but that is, it's, it's a smaller minority. It's like maybe 20% of people. Do you understand in some ways where they're coming from? I, I totally do actually. Totally. I mean, the, the problem is, you know, like they don't want to go to bed at night and, you know, wake up and see, 
dog poop everywhere or the dogs fighting outside in the middle of the night. It's 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 just not good for them either. How do you deal with the fact that there are so many dogs that need so much attention? I mean, there's that whole that, that phrase "puppy dog eyes," right? Which means that the dog is looking at you and it's it, it's trying to convince you to do something. It's trying to to transmit uh, where it's coming from. How do you deal with that at scale when there are so many dogs that, that are looking for help? It's really hard. And it's like, it's a philosophical question more than anything, because like I'm looking behind my laptop here, I have two dogs who are very sick and I'm looking after them. But if I really wanted to tackle the problem, I, I actually probably wouldn't even fix the sort of individual cases. I should just be like mass sterilizing and really put, you know, maybe doing things like lobbying governments and changing laws and those sort of things. But that's also quite not really my skill set. So I think you have to do a little bit of the on the ground stuff because that's where my passion is and that's what I love. And then team it up with the bigger picture stuff as well. But the problem is you can get, like if a dog has six puppies or a dog has an accident, that takes me out of action for the day. Like I need to go and look after that, which doesn't help the bigger picture. So it's a, I don't have the answer. Uh, I'm still trying to figure it out as much as I can. Who are the dogs that are there with you now? Oh, I have Jumbo and Derek. They're two sick dogs. If they make it to my, I have a little small house beside the sanctuary. And if they make it to me, it means they're at the end of the road or they're very sick. So it's like, it's like a hospice basically. Mm. Um, Jumbo's maybe got a week to live and Derek has had a few episodes, of, but he's, he's, he's back on the, uh, on the straight and narrow, but they're very happy. They're on the couch and they're going to get a few sausages and they're cozy uh, instead of out in the street. So there's another dog that you that you write about and that you speak about, Tyson. Who's Tyson? Oh, Tyson was yeah, actually a little while ago. He was one of the first ones, and he um, I was very new to it actually at the start, and I didn't really have the skills that I do now. And I got a call. Somebody said, "Look, there's you, you're the guy who helps the dogs. Come and see this dog. Somebody's dumped it." And I went up there, and I suppose uh, how would I explain it? He was just like a dog, but his head was like swollen, like maybe. It looked like a, a human had a big concussion, you know, like or a big toothache or something, but it was exaggerated big. And I sat down beside him. He looked a bit scary. And I brought him home then and took him to the vets. And I, I was making progress. I was like, he started his breathing, got better. I thought maybe he just got a whack from a car or something. But then after about 36 hours in the middle of the night, he just... It, turned really bad and he started dying so he he obviously had either a snake bite or a, a hit from a car or maybe a hit from a human but it was a very quick learning curve because it was like four or five in the morning and all the vets were closed and i was here with this dog who was dying and all i could do was hold his paw and talk to him really for two hours uh because i realized i was like okay maybe i can hold on until eight o'clock when the vets open but at about six o'clock, I was like, nah, he's not going to make it. So I just uh, had to talk to him and uh, ease him through, which is which I've done quite a few times since. But that was the first time. And it was quite a quite a, an experience, really. What did, it, what did it mean for you having to do that? I think what, for me, being an alcoholic and having let so many people down in the past with, you know, being um absent or you know telling lies as i could go and drink and stuff it just i actually showed up for the dog and i stayed there with him while he died and it was a very hard thing to do but i stuck with it and 
did a good thing for him. So it made me feel really, really proud to just do something good. And and I was like, yeah, this is the right course for me in life. Let me ask you about one other dog. Um, this is Tina. Tell me about Tina. Oh, Tina's there. She's, they're all special, but she was the most special. She was chained up in the mountains and I got a picture. She was like, she was just skin and bones and they had her tied up and not feeding her. And it was just horrific. I didn't even realize until about a week later, she was actually a golden retriever and built her back up. Uh, it took a long time, but she, she, everybody loved her. And she, she turned into this amazing dog, even though she'd been bred for puppies and she was just radiant. But then I only had her, I literally got her better. She was looking unbelievable. And then I got the phone call from a, a random vet check saying she had kidney failure and only had a month to live. So she, she was only with us six months in total, but she left an incredible impression and People online were obsessed with her as well. And she was just radiant, a wonderful creature. You made a promise to her. Yes, I was so close to her. And I was just like, look, your life's not going to be in vain. And I said, I'm going to build a hospital in your name so as all the dogs can have somewhere to to go and recover. So I'm in the process of that. I've, I've raised a good bit of the money and now I'm just doing things like planning permission and uh, permits and stuff like that. But it'll open uh, in August, which is would be one year after she died. So I keep my promise to her. How do you understand, you have like 800,000 followers on Instagram. Um, there are people from all over the world who get invested in the lives of these dogs on the other side of the planet and your work with these dogs. How do you understand that? I, it's crazy. I just don't understand it is the answer. Um, I have my phone like everybody and it's like I'm an introvert. I like my own company and I'm not, I'm quite anti, I can talk to people, I'm, I'm fine, but I, I just, I prefer my own company. So I talk into my phone and I, I didn't want to be on the videos. So I was like, I just talk to the dogs like I think that's the secret is that I talk to them like every single person talks to their own dogs in their own houses. Um, you know, they're like silly names for them and like just talk to them like they're children or whatever. And I, I purposely made it positive because when I was starting, it was still like the tail end of COVID. There was the Ukraine war, the politics in America. I just like everything was so negative and still is. So I was like, look, I'm just going to tell these little guys stories in a positive way. And I think it just puts a little smile on people's face. It's not always good news, but it's something to cheer people up. It's like a little soap opera with the dogs, I mm. always think. There's a huge, um, I was going to say industry, but the, the, there's, there is a, a, a large organization of, of groups that will help people adopt some of these dogs, right? I mean, that whole idea of a rescue dog, taking a dog off the street, taking a dog out of a precarious situation and people bringing it back to their home. What do you make of that and how popular that's become? Yeah, it's, I mean, look, if a dog gets a home anywhere, I think it's great. Um, the one thing I would say is like the likes of America, for example, I'm not, I'm not as familiar with Canada, but I, I just know that America's bursting full of um, shelters and kill shelters and, and stuff like that with millions of dogs. And I think there's a bigger like uh moral th thing there that like we were just breeding all these dogs as mankind that were leaving behind us so but broadly speaking like if somebody gives anybody a good a dog a home it's good for the dog that's good that, that that's kind of the way i look at it good for the dog and good for you i mean can you imagine your life had you not been doing this work if if you, if you weren't doing this where would you be 
Uh, there's a good chance I'll be dead, I'd say. <laughs> like I'm not I'm not even joking. I did yeah. nearly drink myself to death and I was like addicted to Valium and I was drinking three bottles of wine a day and uh it's it's like a vocation or a calling and I just uh, I absolutely love it and I feel blessed that, like uh, that's the one thing I will say is like I've all these people who follow it and I get to spend my days with dogs. It's tough. It's really 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 tough uh, emotionally, but that's so many people's dreams and I and I've found that it, albeit you know when I'm 44 after a tough life but I found it out so I feel completely blessed and humbled to be able to do this I'm so happy you bring people a lot of joy in the work that you're doing well I just think there's a lot of misery in the world and uh what what I've learned from the little community of people who follow is that like there's so much goodness out there still you know there's so much people are people are genuinely mostly really kind and um, they're just looking for outlets for that. And the, the dogs are a great one. Like I, I look at followers maybe on Twitter, for example, and I see, you know, I'll see like Republicans and Democrats or Israelis and Palestinians or, you know, like all these groups of people who, you know, are screaming at each other, but they're all following the dogs and and liking the dogs together. So maybe there's something there to bring people together. I'm really glad to talk to you about the work that you're doing. Thanks for doing it, but also thanks for writing this book and for speaking with us. That's a lovely interview. Thank you very much. Niall Harbison is the author of Hope, How Street Dogs Taught Me the Meaning of Life. He was in Thailand. And you can follow him on Instagram like 800,000 other people do. Just look for his name, Niall Harbison. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.